0: Yeah, many years uh. ago, I taught business ethics. They don't offer it here, I think, oh, really? the, uh, the business school doesn't really trust the philosophy department.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's too bad. Hi, I'm Aaron Miller, and this is How to Help, a podcast about having a life and career of meaning, virtue, and impact. This is Season 1, Episode 9, Meaningful Work. How to Help is sponsored by Merit Leadership, home of the Business Ethics Field Guide. I'm going to start this episode with a number, 51.6%. This, according to the US Bureau of Labor Statistics, is the average share of waking hours that a person spends working, assuming that they're currently employed. That's just over half of our time when we're awake, and that includes weekends. Up until retirement, it's likely that nothing else will consume so much of our attention and time as work will. It's no wonder, then, that we want to enjoy work. But liking your work is complicated. It's not merely a function of pay. People don't last long at jobs that they do just for the money. In fact, in the great majority of studies, job satisfaction is better predicted by things like enjoying your coworkers or trusting your boss than it is by how much you're being paid. But there's perhaps one thing that predicts job satisfaction better than almost anything else. It's finding your work meaningful. More than ever, people are seeking out work with meaning. One study found that 9 in 10 people would accept a lower salary if it meant that they had work with more purpose. And this isn't just a generational thing. Meaningful work is a high priority across all age brackets. But there's a problem. Many people don't know what work gives them meaning. That's why we talked with Jeff Thompson back in episode one about finding your calling. This time, though, I want us to go even deeper into the question of meaningful work. My guest today is Professor Andrea Veltman. She's a philosopher who teaches at James Madison University. And one of her areas of study is the philosophy of work. Her book, Meaningful Work, was one of my favorite reads this year. It's full of fascinating insight and thorough research. My interview with her was, of course, steeped in big philosophical questions, but I think you're going to enjoy just how down-to-earth it is getting into the nitty-gritty details of working life. I guarantee this episode is going to change the way you think about work, what you want from it, and what work should do for everyone else, too. So I started by asking Professor Veltman about her own job as a philosophy professor. Does she find it meaningful?
0: honestly, I think that being a professor is meaningful in every way in which work can be meaningful. It develops capabilities and reflects virtues, it it serves a purpose for the community, it builds relationships. Um, So, I feel very privileged to be a philosophy professor, I find it enjoyable and there are plenty of moments of contemplation, I find that to be a high pleasure. Personally, I love libraries and time in the library. Uh, so the job is excellent in affording the opportunities to be reading and writing and uh, researching in libraries.
1: Right off the bat, we have an idea of what her research and thinking has to say about meaningful work. I want to replay a snippet of what she just said.
0: Being a professor is meaningful in every way in which work can be meaningful. It develops capabilities and reflects virtues. It, it serves a purpose for the community. It builds relationships. She gave
1: us four ingredients
0: for meaningful work.
1: Developing capabilities, reflecting virtues, serving a purpose, and building relationships. This is Professor Veltman's recipe for flourishing, the idea of finding satisfaction, joy, and personal development for ourselves and for others. Work, in its best form, should enhance human flourishing. That idea is going to run throughout this entire episode. But first, we should make sure we're operating under the same definition of work. Because it's not just a job and a paycheck.
0: There's a lot that intuitively counts as work that is not paid. Homework by students, subsistence farming, volunteer work, work around the house, work on scholarly books and articles and so forth. So I'm keen on arguing what work should be how work should not be defined. I don't think it should be defined as as paid activity. I'm happy to settle on a conception of work as as productive activity. I, I often think mm-hmm. of it as concerted effort toward a particular goal or end. but i'm I'm really much more interested in, in thinking about the impact of work on people and the yeah. meaningfulness of work. I saw the question of of defining work as something that should be addressed but not something that I wanted to get hung up on.
1: So this broader definition of work is not the way most people define it. I mean, think about it. If someone you're chatting with at a party asks you what you do, you're almost certainly going to reply with your job, not some other kind of work like a hobby or housework or caring for a loved one. All those other things are productive activities. They're work too. But for some reason, if we're not paid to do it, we don't think of it as being central to, quote, what we do. This is a problem, the idea that for work to count, it has to be tied to a paycheck. For one thing, it ignores so much of our work each day, things like taking care of children, cleaning the house, or helping a neighbor. It also means we strip out the power of work to help us flourish as people. Flourishing really should be our primary goal, and a paycheck is just part of that.
0: Fundamentally, I'm inclined to say that the reason why there's a disconnect between so many jobs and the ideal of flourishing is that human values have become lost, eclipsed by concern with economic values. Right? A person is, I suppose, sometimes inclined to think about the realm of, of production and work in terms of means and ends. How do we meet our goals? How do we do this efficiently? How do we maximize profit and so forth? And those are all um, necessary questions about work, but there's also the human element. Are we diminishing people's capabilities? Uh, Are are we doing something undignified, something harmful? So I think there's a disconnect, essentially, because economic values have eclipsed human values. Of course, I would argue that um, if a person seeks to be ethical in, in running their business or their organization, they have to think about the impact of work upon workers and think about those human values.
1: When I was in high school, I had a phone sales job. I sold, and this is true by the way, magic show tickets. There was a magician who traveled the country putting on performances and donating part of the ticket sales to charity. We would call ahead to the cities and towns where he was performing and try to get people to buy tickets. As high school jobs go, it wasn't too bad. I got to do as my best friend and we would spend a big chunk of our income during breaks at the nearby convenience store buying junk food. But I wasn't very good at this job. It was hard to feel motivated, like I was contributing to anything worthwhile. I was also bad at sales. I mean, the job did not fit my interests or abilities very well, but I was young and there wasn't a family needing my work to buy their food and their shelter. Many, many people are in bad jobs and not because they aren't suited for them. Their jobs are just bad and they need them to pay the bills. Think of Amazon warehouse workers, for example. Lots of news stories talk about how crappy those jobs are. There's a reason some work is called inhumane. It doesn't treat people as people. To Amazon's credit, they've raised the minimum wage for all of their employees, but the jobs are still pretty hard.
0: In the case of of Amazon warehouse workers being exhausted Mm. by their work, the problem is not just that workers themselves are having desires that are mismatched with their work, but that the work itself ought to be improved to be less, less exhausting and and more uh, in keeping with, with the needs of human beings, right? People need breaks, uh, They they often need to be left to their own judgment and ingenuity as to how to do their work in terms of the details and the execution. At least some of the time, the problem goes deeper than a mismatch between workers and their desires and the work itself.
1: Another part of the problem, why we're not flourishing, isn't just that jobs can be bad, but also that our work may dominate too much of our lives. If the goal is flourishing, we can't find it from work alone. This is why Professor Veltman comes out against a 40-hour work week. And I can hear you saying, yeah, right, like that could ever change. But shouldn't we be thinking more about what all of this time means?
0: First of all, yeah, the very concept of flourishing draws to mind that a person would have a plurality of goods, sort of. Right well-lived, balanced life, that work would not overtake life, but that you would have time for work and enjoyment of leisure activities, for loving relationships, communing with nature, going to sports activities, and so on and so on. I've really come to argue that the problem of imbalance that, that many people are feeling nowadays with respect to their work and their life is that we do work too much. A 40-hour work week is, in fact, way off in terms of the ideal of human flourishing. And a 40-hour work week, work dominates life. And we ought to bear in mind that 40 hours is a historically contingent norm. It's not a rational Archimedean starting point for evaluating work. And I'm really in favor of reducing the workday and reducing the work week. You know, there are some studies that have shown that you're actually productive for only three hours a day. And otherwise, you're just screwing off. And I'm completely in favor of a four-hour workday.
1: This might feel unrealistic, but there is a degree to which this is within our control. Some people get sucked into their work so much that they don't leave time for other things. And if more people resisted at the encroachments of modern work life, employers would have to accommodate them. We shouldn't be answering emails on the weekend unless it's helping us actually flourish. And in truth, these limits on modern work are already happening in many industries. Maximizers, the kind who want to squeeze every penny from every opportunity, probably get their hackles raised at this idea. But they think of work very differently than most people do. You see, economists tend to describe work as what they call a disutility. Utility, quickly defined as satisfaction, and disutility is the opposite. Work, as conceived by economists, is a disutility. The idea is that the reason you do it is simply because you're getting paid. Otherwise, you'd spend all of your time and leisure doing something else. And there's obviously truth to that. But if that's the only way we think of work, we miss out on how many different ways that work can help us flourish.
0: I just want to say one more thing about work as a disutility. Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, I think that you're correct in the idea that work is a disutility there is the rationale for paying people for their work, right? You're doing something that other people need doing. It's a sacrifice on your part. You need to be paid for it. And yeah. the whole idea of, of my book of meaningful work was really to bring out the intrinsic values of work itself, right? And to reject the idea that work is simply a disutility. But by all means, I still think that workers should be paid well for their work. So <clears throat> there's something to the idea that work is a disutility. It is often a sacrifice, but at the same time, you know, there are many psychological and human values that we get from our work. A sense of identity, a sense of self-respect, a structure to our day, a place in the community.
1: I love the way Professor Veltman so quickly identifies all the different ways that work can make us happier and more flourishing people. So we need to dig in more to those ways that work helps us to flourish. One of these is recognizing how we tend to value work that has lasting impact. There's an opposite to this kind of work, what Professor Veltman calls ephemeral work. Cleaning your kitchen is ephemeral work because it's just going to get dirty again. Generally speaking, we don't value this kind of ephemeral work very much at all.
0: Well, yeah, it really takes off from a distinction between labor and work that we find in The Human Condition by Hannah Mm Arendt. Uh, where she thought that labor is really tied to the body. It's tied to the fact that we're embodied beings and before we do anything else, we have to meet the needs of life itself. We have to eat and we want cleanliness and rest and so forth and all of that needs doing. Uh, So labor is cyclical. It's something that you don't do once and you're done, but it's part of the perpetual, never-ending cycles of life. And she thought work was fundamentally different in that work... Uh, creates an enduring artifice, like a work of art, architecture, writing a book. All of that escapes the cycles of life and puts a mark on the world of greater permanence.
1: So this is how we think of work that has an impact. It lasts. It survives its creator. Steve Jobs and Apple, Henry Ford and the automobile, Betsy Ross and the American flag, Michelangelo and the David. But this idea that our work only has value if it leaves behind some physical artifice ignores some of the ways that even ephemeral work can have lasting impact.
0: There's a certain insight in in the idea that meaningfulness is is often connected with enduring work, right? People have the Mm -hmm. notion that if you can have an impact on the world, then your life is more meaningful. There's a truth in that, but I also wanted to argue in the book that there's a limitation to aligning meaningfulness with endurance right because we can cook together and celebrate life and that's ephemeral unless i guess you're taking a picture of it but in the very labor of cooking to celebrate and maintain life you can also have activity that is meaningful and sometimes caring for infants is more meaningful than installing pipe drains which are durable So there are examples that cut across that labor-work division. And the conclusion that I came to was that, at most, creating an enduring artifact is part of what can make work meaningful. But you certainly would not want to equate meaningful work with an enduring product.
1: And it feels like we, as society, tend to attach more dignity to the durable kind than to the ephemeral kind. I mean, maybe I'm wrong in my observation, and maybe you have some thoughts on that, but it seems like the pattern is the more repetitive and ephemeral it is, the less dignity tends to be attached to it, like a housekeeper versus, say, uh, an artist painting a painting. Tell me your thoughts on that. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, to some extent, the cyclical labor of maintaining life can be more oppressive in itself Mm -hmm. than the labor of creating an enduring artifact. And perhaps there is, there is reason why social esteem tends to attach to the creation of, of the enduring work. Right, Arndt had this line in her book about human beings having an innate repugnance to futility. Hmm. Uh, there's something to that. You know, we see the idea that you would just labor at housework day in and day out as a more oppressive life for a human being than, than someone who has the freedom to create something durable. Some of the the greater dignity and esteem that you're talking about is undoubtedly social, but some of it might have, have to do with the nature of the labor itself. And now for a word from our
1: sponsor. Leading an ethical career can sometimes feel like navigating through a wilderness full of pitfalls and other dangers. Having good intentions isn't enough. What you need are ethical skills. The Business Ethics Field Guide leads you through the trickiest of ethical challenges. Based on extensive research involving hundreds of dilemmas faced at work and written by authors with decades of experience, the book guides you through the 13 most common ethical dilemmas that people face. It gives you the expertise and tools you need to navigate them safely. But more than just keeping you safe, it also trains you to be an ethical leader that others can follow with trust and confidence. You can find the Business Ethics Field Guide at Amazon, Apple Books, Audible, and at MeritLeadership.com. I agree with Professor Veltman that not all meaningful work is meaningful just because of the value we attach to it. Some work just stinks. It's hard, uncomfortable, and unfulfilling. We tell ourselves work like that has dignity But we don't do it ourselves. We pay other people to do it. Even a noble purpose wouldn't be enough for many of us to not shy away from all kinds of jobs. And maybe this idea that all work is meaningful is just a lie that we tell ourselves to justify a world where other people are stuck with bad work. Is there a possible world where everyone can have a job that's meaningful, that fits both their abilities and their values? So we talked a little bit earlier in the conversation about fit and the idea that not every job can fit every person. It feels like we could do better than we're doing now, though, right? Maybe you could describe what you imagine a world being like where more people fit in their day-to-day roles when it comes to work.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, that's very challenging. And I would say, first of all, that there's another scholar with a book on work, Russell Myriad. His book is Just Work. He really takes Mm -hmm. up the concept of fit and talks about fit with respect to having good work. But one thing that, that does really come to mind is that there's a certain sort of easy optimism in the notion that somehow society can can create jobs of different types that will fit different people's Energies, talents, abilities, interests, desires, and so forth. Everything wraps right. up quite nicely and neatly, if that were true. But when you really dig into it, that's quite problematic, actually. There's some work that needs doing that is simple and routine and monotonous. And do you really want to say that cleaning fits the abilities of the people who do it? I, I would not ever say that. When you dig into the notion that everything is happy because there's work to fit everybody, you confront the problem of bad work. Personally, I, I really believe in the capabilities of working people and that, and that they, are, they are capable of more than simple routine work. Yeah. Um, so I, I would be really skeptical of the idea that somehow society can have work that fits everyone and that's the solution to a bunch of complicated, messy problems about work.
1: Exactly, and I, I think I agree with you, and the idea that that it's a simple task of sort of aligning society to match whatever a person's interests are in a way that makes meaningful contributions feels naive. <laughs> and so I think you know, like I was saying, I have to grade as part of my job, and I do it and and uh, but I do it in appreciation of all the other great things that come with what I get to do day to day, and it's okay. It doesn't have to fit me perfectly in every regard that way.
0: So. Well, I should say there's some truth in, in the idea that you'll flourish if you find work that fits you. you know, sure. There are times when you're well-suited to your work. There is a good match of your virtues and personality and, and your knowledge and your values with your work. And that's, that's part of excellence through work. But again, there are limitations to the optimistic idea that there's work that fits everyone. Um, because there's the problem of simple routine work. That doesn't seem to be matched to the potential capabilities of persons.
1: My good friend Jeff Thompson, whom I interviewed for the first episode of this season, will be pulling out his hair at this point if he didn't shave his head. Anyway, his work in Calling says that for some, even simple routine work can feel fulfilling. So for his perspective on this, I encourage you to revisit that episode. But perhaps part of the problem is that routine work often comes with very little autonomy. And autonomy, it turns out, is a critical element of finding work meaningful. The more we can feel like we contribute with our mind and heart, and not just our body, the more satisfying work becomes.
0: Good work really intersects with autonomy in a number of ways. First of all, there's the, um, the insight that we have in a liberal democracy that people ought to be able to choose their work. Right. We shudder the thought that you should simply be assigned to a task despite your choices or that you should have no choice in entering a particular job or a particular field. We celebrate autonomous choice in relation to entering a job or leaving a job. I tried to bring to light in the book that there's a deeper way in which autonomy is important for work. It's important that you have autonomy in your work, and that's an element of flourishing through work. Most of us recognize the badness of trying to micromanage employees.
1: <laughs> right. It's
0: important to respect the um, the knowledge and skill and know-how of employees and to give them some space, some autonomy to do their work as, as they know how.
1: Consider how far some employers go to limit the decision-making power of their employees. The employers might call it risk mitigation or some other nonsense explanation, but the truth is probably more structural. When it's a job simply to be a manager and nothing else, you're likely to manage as closely as you can.
0: I'm rather skeptical of managers in general, the managerial class, the idea of studying to be a manager as a job. I mean, undoubtedly, people have to do the scheduling and write the reports and so forth and be a a point of contact when employees have problems. But managers ought to be working alongside employees so that they understand the job and that they're contributing in the same way that the employees do. So I I would blame a lot of micromanagement on misdirected efforts on the part of people who are disconnected from the fundamental useful work that, that real workers do. Remember
1: the show, Undercover Boss, where the owner of a business takes an entry-level position in their company? Professor Veltman actually used it for some of the insights in her book. There's something so watchable about a boss accurately seeing the lives of his or her employees. Sadly, the show works because of how easy it is for bosses to be out of touch. But even a great boss isn't enough. For everyone to have a chance at a good job, there are bigger things that need changing. Entire categories of jobs might need replacing.
0: Well, the idea that, that I tend to land on comes from John Rawls. Mm-hmm. He articulated the idea that a well ordered society provides ample opportunity for people to achieve self respect for meaningful work. And I think that hits on the right idea of a network of businesses and organizations in society, ranging from Profit-minded businesses to nonprofits, right? Hospitals, schools, small and large organizations of all types, together providing opportunities for work. You know, I think that the changes are really as profound as a person can imagine. uh, Because factory work, for instance, is not particularly conducive to human flourishing when a person is an appendage of a machine and is just pulling pulling knobs and cranks and Right. Moving their body in a monotonous way all day long, this is not conducive to human flourishing. So I I think that a lot of the monotonous work in factories would have to be done by machines and robots in order for people to be able to flourish through their work. I know that sounds utopian, but that's that's where my thoughts often lead. that factory work is a good example of work that doesn't allow flourishing.
1: The idea of robots replacing humans offends a lot of people. But the truth is that a 2007 study of happy jobs by the National Opinion Research Center found that monotonous work ranks far lower than other kinds of work. The unhappiest jobs in America include all kinds of monotonous labor, like roofers, packagers, and freight workers. But it's troubling that a bunch of these unhappy jobs also involve working directly with people in menial ways. Waiters in this study had the second unhappiest job in the country, The bottom 10 list includes cashiers and retail sales. These are jobs where customers have unique power to be really terrible to fellow human beings. So it's not just factory work that needs improving, it's also the jobs that subject people to regular mistreatment. How does a fair society, a moral society, manage the problem of bad work? It's hard to find
0: simple, effective ideas. The reality of work is terribly messy. I, I don't want to be entirely utopian in thinking about all of this, but um, I guess at the end of the day, I'm willing to sit with a lot of difficulties and complexities and contradictions. Uh, I mean, work is really a morass of a topic. It's messy. This is why yeah. a lot of philosophers have not written on work. They love conceptual analysis where things turn out cleanly. They don't like a morass of a problem that, that can't be solved. And, and work is a bunch of an unsolvable philosophical issues. So in terms of what the ideal society would look like, it's, it's really hard to say.
1: One of the things that I loved about this interview with Professor Veldman is that she repeatedly took the opportunity to ask me what I thought about the issues we discussed. I was struck by her genuine interest in learning about my thinking on all of this, even if the point of the interview was to learn from her.
0: I'm curious to hear a little bit more about some of your thoughts on work. I mean, as you know, I I really wrestle with a lot of these problems and I don't think there are tidy solutions. What do you think about the problem of bad work, for instance? You know, that some work is very draining and dispiriting and sometimes dangerous for the person who performs it. I mean, what do you think are the solutions to the problems of bad work?
1: Yeah, so, so bad work is hard to remove, socially speaking. This work is providing value to others. There are people who are better off from dangerous work, even if they're not the ones performing the dangerous work. There are some ways that other people's lives are improved. I think the problem is, is then, I mean, it creates a risk of turning society into a utility monster that can just suck the value out of the poor people who are stuck in this dangerous work. I think what comes from that is that if this work really does create this substantial benefit, then we need to use the fruits of that benefit to support and keep those people safe and make their conditions better as much as possible. I think the the problem historically is that the dangerous work has always been almost purely extractive, right? these people in this dangerous role have created all this value, but don't enjoy the fruits of any of it. And more importantly, the fruits of it haven't been tied back in a way to make their job safer or healthier or better in some way. Um, one of my co-authors used to be the, the vice president of environment health and safety at Alcoa, a global aluminum manufacturer. He worked under Paul O'Neill, who was famous for prioritizing safety over any, everything, over profit, everything. Safety was the biggest priority in the company. My friend Bill took that initiative to mean that his workers, the workers at Alcoa should not only be safe at work, but they should leave Alcoa healthier than they came. <laughs> it was an interesting goal, he set, And so there were wellness programs that were instituted. You know, obviously safety was something that they had already invested a lot of time and effort into, but now it was a matter of, okay, our workers are, are safe but now how do we make them healthier? How do we improve their lives even further that way? What was interesting is that under Paul O'Neill's reign, Alcoa financially encountered incredible success because where the focus was on worker safety, it meant it invited more creativity for solving problems. It invited people to be more empathetic toward each other and recognize the risks that each other were facing How to improve those things. It actually financially made the company incredibly successful during that time. I think that's the answer is we have an ethical obligation for the people that are facing dehumanizing work. That work presumably exists because it generates value. We have a moral responsibility to redirect more of it to them than, than I think what we're doing on average today.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I often think that when we're faced with work that damages the people who perform it, we ought to do everything in our power to alter the conditions of work so that the well-being Of of workers can be improved. Anything that can be done to improve workers' safety and well being seems a step in the right direction.
1: So there is hope, and we really can make work better. Perhaps part of the answer is that meaningful work always, always means other people.
0: I mean, on the whole, I think that one of the most important conclusions that I, I arrived at in thinking about all of this was that. Meaningful work doesn't have just a single dimension; it has many dimensions, and one of those dimensions is is cultivating and reflecting relationships that are meaningful. Our part of the meaning of life comes from our being networked in a larger totality of a society that makes sense of our lives. And work is a way of positioning a worker within the world, right? I mean, it's it's a way of finding a purpose in the world. It's also a way of of building and reflecting relationships, right? I, I, I like the idea that work can itself build and reflect love. Yes, our identities are often wrapped up in our relationships, and work can be meaningful when it reflects our life narratives. So working for a family business, for instance, can be very meaningful um, mm-hmm. because it reflects that, that larger background of the life narrative.
1: So if we want to make room for helping people flourish in their work, we need more ways to connect work to the lives of others. In that same 2007 study of happy work, the top jobs were dominated by work that helped people in meaningful ways. The happiest jobs included clergy, physical therapists, and educators. Meaningful work depends on the needs of those around you. We can create more meaningful work by making work meet those needs.
0: Well, one place to start is in thinking about the needs of a community in which you live what are the genuine needs that will help the community to be prosperous if the community needs teachers and those teachers are necessary to foster an intellectual life in the community then you can find meaningful work in teaching if if you really value health in the community and you see issues helping people with their health and being in the healthcare field would be quite meaningful and finding meaningful work is often a way of, of reflecting on your values, uh, on, on, on the ways in which you can make yourself useful in your community. It is isn't part about finding an individualized fit between yourself and the needs of other people.
1: I've spent a lot of time digging into questions about what makes work have meaning. And the best thinking always comes back to this idea. When you can fit your values and abilities into work that meets the needs of other people, you're essentially guaranteed to find work that has meaning. And what I loved about this interview is that it taught me that we don't go far enough if we only think of our own work. We truly have an obligation, as people and as a society, to make work better for others, too. We can do that in big structural ways, and it's worth demanding that from those in power. But we can do it in small ways, too. In fact, This would simply be an application of what research tells us about meaningful work. We can treat people better at the register or in the restaurant. We can show them that their work meant something to us, that it helped. I'm so grateful to Professor Veltman for taking the time for this interview. She really has such an engaging way of thinking and writing. In the show notes, we've linked to her book and to some of her articles about the meaning of work. Her book really was one of my favorite reads of the last year. If you enjoy How to Help, please take a moment to give us a positive review in your podcast app. It really helps us to reach more listeners. And also be sure to subscribe so you can get future episodes automatically. Next time, we're going to learn all about the world of impact investing. Most people think of business and nonprofits as separate, each doing their own thing. But the truth is that the gap between these two has been bridged in the last two decades. More and more businesses are making it a goal to have a positive social impact. And these businesses need investors. One of the pioneers of impact investing is my guest, Jeff Woolley. He's going to reveal how major financial resources are being used right now to improve our world. To stay up to date with how to help, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter. Each edition recommends high-impact organizations and shares ideas for how to have more meaning in your work. You can find it at how-to-help.com. We're grateful, as always, to Merit Leadership, who sponsors our podcast, and to our production team, which includes Cindy Hall, Travis Stevenson, yours truly, and Eric Robertson, who did the editing and the music. All of our music comes from the Pleasant Pictures Music Club, and if you want to use their music in your projects, you can find a link and a discount code in our show notes. Finally, as always, thank you so much for listening. I'm Aaron Miller,
0: and this has been How to Help.